All right, good morning, guys. How are we today? All right, sunny day. Chris was right. A little more energy. I like it. Hey, as Chris mentioned, we are starting a new series today called Mountains. And what we're going to do is we are going to take the next three weeks and together we are going to go mountain climbing. And we're going to climb up some different mountains and read the stories of their events in the Bible. And we are going to see where the power of God is present on these mountains. And then we're going to hop off these mountains. We're going to climb down the mountains. We don't want to hop off mountains. That's bad, right? We're going to climb back down these mountains together, and we're going to go to uh, desert areas where we're going to experience the presence of God. So I would encourage you over these next three, six weeks or so, uh, if you are traveling or vacation, as most of us have in the summertime, uh, or if you allegedly do this thing where you have a cabin up north, right? I've heard about these. I don't know they exist because I've never personally gotten an invite to one. Uh, but I'm not bitter. It's all good. It's all good. But if you are traveling this summer, I would encourage you to uh, follow along during the week on the North Point app or on the website as well, because you do not want to miss how God is going to be moving here in these next three to six weeks as well. Uh, so one of the reasons that we want to talk about mountains is because here recently... A specific mountain has been in the news in the past six to eight weeks or so, and that would be climbing season for Mount Everest. Mount Everest. Uh, It's been in the news a lot lately. It is uh, located over in the Himalayas. Um, It is the largest mountain above sea level in the entire world. Does anybody know how tall Mount Everest is? Any guesses? Ooh, 29,029 feet. Guys, that is like five and a half miles. You're supposed to go, ooh. Yeah, right? I mean, that is farther than some of you guys drove to get here this morning, and people are bear crawling up this thing, okay? So this mountain is massive, located over in the Himalayas, and every year the government gives around uh, a few hundred, three to four hundred permits out for people to come climb Mount Everest. And this past year, they gave away 381 permits for climbers all over the world to try and summit this mountain. And then they had a few others who hadn't used it in the past. And so you've got a few hundred people in about a week span trying to climb Mount Everest every year. And it is incredibly difficult to climb because the higher up you go, there's a change in altitude. And with that change in altitude is a change in oxygen. And if you are climbing, your muscles need oxygen to function, let alone most of us know we need oxygen to live and breathe, right? So like oxygen is a good thing. And when you are climbing, you get less and less of it. And so that is one of the risks that you go through. You can also get sickness and things like frostbite that make it more difficult and your risk begins to increase on the mountain and the weather is coming and the wind is beating against you and you can suffer all sorts of things like stroke or have a fall risk. It is incredibly dangerous to climb Mount Everest. In fact, since they started recording people climbing the mountain, they've had over 300 deaths climb of people climbing the mountains. And if you were to go up one of the different paths, you would come across all sorts of areas that are marked as spots to like notice as you're going up by bodies of people that have not made it back down the mountain. In fact, if you were to go up one particular route, there's an area called Green Boots that is, is marked because the person who did not make it back down the mountain in that area was wearing green boots. And for years, they were not able to identify who this person was. Why? Because it is incredibly risky to do that. And this past season alone was one of their more deadly seasons where they actually, last I saw, had 11 people not make it back down the mountain. 11 people that died trying to climb 
Mount Everest. They say it was because uh, the government gave away too many passes this past year for people to climb up. And because of the weather, they had such a short season that they had a two-day period to try and climb and a three-day period to try and climb the mountain. And so when they did that, all these hundreds of climbers decided in that two days or that three days, they were all going to go up at the same time. And as you can see, it became crowded. There were lines like Disney World to try to get up this mountain. And as you are going against the elements and oxygen is getting scarce and you got to wait on the person ahead of you to move, it became incredibly risky that they told stories of people actually getting to the top of the mountain but were too afraid to stand up and celebrate because they thought they would get bumped and fall off of the mountain. It was incredibly dangerous this past year. So my question is simply this. Why in the world would somebody spend a small fortune put their bodies through these extreme pain and risk losing their life to climb a mountain. Why in the world would somebody want to do something like that? I think the answer is simply this, to see and be a part of something powerful. Because they wanted to see and be a part of something powerful because when we are when we witness power when we are in the presence of power man it it changes us it penetrates deep into who we are and it changes uh, so over these next three weeks, we are going to go mountain climbing together on three different mountains. And we are going to look at the ways that God showed up on these mountains in powerful ways. And the ways that it changed those who had the privilege of experiencing the power of God at this time. So we are going to jump here soon into Genesis chapter 22. And we're going to talk about a guy named Abraham. Abraham is an incredibly important figure in the Bible. In fact, he is incredibly important to both Christianity, to, to Judaism, and even Islamic belief systems that most of the known world and the religions have heard of Abraham before. And we know from the beginning of, the, of his story in the Bible that he was called by God to start a new nation or a new people. And that Abraham was not some, some perfect citizen, but rather simply God showed it to Abraham and he said, Abraham, I have chosen you and out of you, I am going to use your family and bless them like crazy to establish a new nation that is so great. It is a blessing to the entire world. Abraham, I have chosen you, not because he was great, but because God chose Abraham. And he said, Abraham, if we're going to do this, the first thing I need you to do is I need you to pack everything up and I need you to just leave your homeland and I need you to go to an area and I will show you where it's at. Now, husbands, if you came home from North Point from church this morning and you walked in your wife and said, man, baby, God spoke to me. It was so powerful. I can feel it. It was great. I'll be thrilled. But also, you're right, if you said that and you're like, honey, look, God told me that he's going to do something wonderful. We've just got to pack everything up today and we've got to move. Where are we going to go? No idea, but God's going to show it to us when we get there. What questions do you think your wife would have for you? Honey, that is great. I'm so glad that God has spoken to you and that he's going to use you to do great things. Did he happen to check the housing market? What about the school districts, right? Like, I'm all about it. We want God to move, but whoa, there's something about that unknown of where I'm going to go that that can be a little difficult at times. But instead, we read here that that is not what happened, but rather Abraham and his wife Sarah packed everything up and they took off to a land that God was going to show them. And God shows up again, and Abraham and Sarah are around 75 years old at this time. And he says, Abraham, once again, I'm going to bless you and make a great nation and people out of you. That is a blessing to all other nations. And in order to get that started, first I'm going to bless you with a child. 
at 75 years old. Okay, right? Abraham says, this is great. I'm excited. This is going to be really cool. Uh, God, I'm, I'm in. Whatever you want to do. Now, let me, let me give, paint a little picture here of what happens in the meantime. Abraham is not some perfect individual. In fact, if we were to read some of the chapters before the one we're going to dive in today, we would see the kind of guy that Abraham is up to this point. In fact, we would read stories where Abraham, out of fear for his own life, pimped out his wife to other men. Twice. Now, when they came to him and they said, Abraham, your wife is really good looking. These rulers in this region, I would love for her to come hang out with me. Abraham goes, yeah, that's my sister. Yeah, I mean, definitely all good. Just don't kill me. It's all good, right? Now, God provided and nothing happened there. It was all good. But twice Abraham had the coward to, to back away from his own wife. And that as time goes on, God still hadn't provided a child or a son for them. And so Abraham and Sarah get this idea of saying, hey, you know what? If God's not going to show up or do anything yet, let's just do it on our own. Let's take matters in our own. And so Sarah says, hey, here's my handmaid. Why don't you have a child with her? That's a little weird, Abraham, but okay. So he does, has a child with his wife's handmaid. And as you can imagine, over time, this makes Sarah a little bit jealous. And so Abraham, being the astute guy that he is, decides, hey, this is what we'll do. I will take this woman, I will take this child, and I will leave them out in the wilderness by themselves, and we'll go away. Super nice guy, right? Like, that is ghosting to the extreme, okay? Like, that is terrible what Abraham does. And yet, in spite of all of these flaws, God chose to use Abraham. And the reason is because even though Abraham had faults in his life, Abraham trusted God. In spite of everything, Abraham trusted God. And eventually, at the ripe old age of 100, Abraham and Sarah have a baby boy. And they name him Isaac. And the reason that Sarah wanted him to be Isaac is because the name Isaac means laughter. And she thought, man, this is hilarious that I have a child at 100 years old and other people will hear it and they'll think it's funny too. So we're going to call him laughter. So congratulations. Welcome to the new world, Isaac. You are a joke. Parenting 101, right? All right, so that's what happens here. Uh, where we're going to pick up here, this is about 18 years later. Most people would say Isaac has grown up. He is 18 years old. Abraham is around 118 years old at this point in time when God shows up to Abraham again and tells him to go mountain climbing here. In Genesis chapter 22, we're going to start in verse 1. It says this. It says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Now, right at the beginning, if we're honest with each other, when we read that God tested, like there's something inside of us that goes, ooh, right? Like that's not comfortable. I like God loving. I like God providing. I like God taking care of. I like God doing powerful things. I don't know how I feel about God testing me. Like that's, that's not comfortable because nobody really likes tests, if we're being honest. Nobody loves to take a test. In fact, I, I hated every single math test I ever took in high school. I was terrible at math. In fact, my senior year, I come into Mr. Rice, our math teacher's room, and I said, uh, Mr. Rice, I'm here again. And he goes, oh, yippee. <laughs> Way, I'm so excited about this. And I look in the back of Mr. Rice's wall, and he's got this poster. And on this poster is a bunch of careers. It says doctor and veterinarian and scientist and uh, teacher and all these different career paths that you could choose. And on the other side of this chart was all these math courses. 
And it was to line up to say, hey, if you want to do this job, you need this much math. And if you want to be this, you need this much math. And I went through this whole list of jobs on there, and I didn't see the single one that I wanted. So I said, Mr. Rice, I'm looking to be a pastor one day, but I don't see pastor or clergy or anything on your little chart here. What does that mean for me? Can I leave? Right? Like, what's going on here? And he said, well, Jake, I'm going to tell you exactly what you need. All right, I'm ready for it. What do you say? Jake, sit down. All right, I'm good. Open your book to page one. All right, page one. He goes, now close your book. All right, that's all you need. <laughs> so do we have an understanding? Just try. Like, that's all I ask, Jake. Just try. I was terrible at math. I didn't try either. Right? I was terrible at math. History class, love history. It was so exciting to me. I love learning the facts. I love learning what happened. I love hearing all the stories. I was prepared for every single history test ever. I was never prepared for a math test. I had an incredibly gracious math teacher, but I was never prepared for math. See, when God tests us, he is not trying to tempt us. God is not pushing us into sin, but rather he is checking to see if we are prepared for what he has in store for us. So when the Bible tells us here that God tested Abraham, it's not saying God was pushing Abraham into sin, but rather he was checking to see if Abraham was prepared for what God wanted to do with him. Jump into verse 2 here. It says, Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, he's awfully specific. Take that guy, that one right there, this kid. Take him and go to the region of Moriah sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. So here is our first mountain, the mountain in Moriah. Now think about this with me, if you will. Father's Day was last week, and I happened to pop on social media and found out that everybody has the world's best dad, which is great, right? Saw it all over the place. Dads, let me talk to you here for a second. Would you ever allow harm to come to your child. Only when they talk back, right? No, like there would never be a time when you would allow harm to come to your child, let alone be the person who causes harm to your kids. No good dad would do that. And yet what God is asking Abraham, the man who waited 25 years for his child to do here, is unspeakable. No good dad would do this. See, my first thought and every first thought when, when a parent hears this, when they read this, what comes to their mind is, Mm-mm, no, 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 not my kid. Not my child. Look, you can take the house. You can take the car. You can take the money. You can definitely take my in-laws. You can take whatever you want, but do not touch my child. Not my kid. The problem here is that sacrificing your child was not some new idea to Abraham. In fact, the culture all around him had child sacrifice as an act of worship to false gods. Some even claiming that a fertility god would say that, hey, if I, if I blessed you, that I would want a piece of that in return. And so whenever the fertility god, the false fertility god, would do their thing, then people would sacrifice, whether it be grain or an animal or, yes, even their child, back to that false God. And while this had to be an incredibly emotional and hard time for Abraham, it wasn't completely unknown. He had seen this all around him before. Verse 3 says, early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey and he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. 
And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. I struggle to get this. I get loading up the donkey. I get taking your son and a few other people. But I would be headed the opposite way. I don't get this because Abraham doesn't barter. Okay, God, I, I will see your Isaac and raise you 40 cattle, right? Like he doesn't try to, to substitute in any way. He doesn't give an alternative. Hey, God, what if, what if like we just rough him up a little bit or something? Like what, what was some other ways we could do something here? He doesn't question, God, why did you give me a child that you're now asking me to give up? He doesn't stall. God, I hear you. That's such a good idea. I got a few things I got to finish for like 20 years and then we'll, we'll revisit this idea, right? These are all things Jake would be doing. These are all things I would be trying. I have a beautiful daughter who turns six months old today and I love her with all of my heart and I would fight to my dying breath. Anybody that tries to get near her, including boys for the next like 18 to 20 years, okay? <laughs> and go down to Timbertown, warn your kids, all right? <laughs> but I'm, I would not let anything happen to my daughter. Verse 5. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Super interesting. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son? Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, this is beautiful, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. See, this, this is not Isaac's first rodeo. Isaac has been around, and Isaac has seen burnt offerings before. He knows what you do. He knows that you take the wood, you take the fire, you take the animal, you kill said animal, you splatter it all over the altar there, right? And you burn that animal until there is absolutely nothing left. He has seen this done before. And so when Isaac looks around, he says, okay, I see the fire, I see the wood, I see a problem, <laughs> And he begins to connect the dots here. He begins to connect. And when he asks a pretty good question to his father, Abraham's, amper, amper, Abraham's answer is very simple. God will provide. God will provide. See, we know from later on in the Bible, if we were to jump to the other end in Hebrews chapter 11, it fills us in with some information that we're just not given at this point in time in this event and it tells us that Abraham actually believed that God could raise Isaac back from the dead if he wanted to. That Abraham trusted that God would provide a way. Abraham trusted that if God was going to ask for something that seemed to defy all logic, that he could provide in a way that would seem to defy all logic as well. That God will provide. Verse 9. It says, When they reached the place God had told him about, 
Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. See, I don't know if you've had the luxury of seeing a 100-year-old man race an 18-year-old man before, but I am willing to put a year's worth of a paycheck on it that says Isaac could have outrun Abraham at this point in time. That Isaac has got every single opportunity and power to go, no, 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 hold on, you're not tying me up, thank you very much. I'm tying you up and throwing you off this mountain myself here, right? Like there are tons of things Isaac could have done to gotten away here. And Abraham could have done nothing about it. That Isaac has every opportunity, Isaac has every ability to get away. Some of you guys can't even get your teenager to clean their room without threatening to throw their cell phone into a lake. And yet Isaac is willingly putting himself on an altar. Obedient to his father's will, even to death. That is crazy. It's crazy. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Much to the joy of Isaac, the test was passed. That Abraham's actions proved his faith. That we see here that Abraham trusted God and as a result of that trust, he was willing to back up his trust in God. And he was willing to be obedient to what God had asked him to do. That the actions follow the faith. The actions follow the faith for Abraham. See, when we trust God in these moments that may seem absolutely ridiculous, when we come home to find out that our marriage is finally broken, or we leave work early because we found out we don't work there anymore. Or the doctor comes in with really bad test results. Or we're not sure about that child that seems to have just completely walked away from their faith. When we trust God in these moments that seem ridiculous, then our actions will prove our faith that God provides according to his plan. That our actions are to follow our faith, that trust that we have. It goes on in verse 13 and 14. It says, Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket was a ram caught by its horns. He went over and he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. God provides. For Abraham and Isaac, on that day it was a ram that took Isaac's place. See, on top of this mountain in Moriah, we see three things. We see three things. Number one, we see that God does indeed provide. That when things seem lost, that when things seem darkest and you have no idea what in the world is going to happen next, 
God is able to provide according to his perfect will because he is still in control. That there's not a situation, there's not a circumstance, there's nothing that happens that is too big for God. That God is completely in control and can provide according to his will and his perfect plan. So we see that God provides, and we also saw a father who gave up his son. A father who gave up his son, that Abraham trusted God so much that he chose to trust God with the one thing or the one person that meant everything to him. And the reason that Abraham can trust God with Isaac is because the one thing, the one person that truly means everything to Abraham is God. Because the greatest love for Abraham, the greatest trust for Abraham was God. And so it became easy to give up anything, even his own child, because he has that much trust in who God is. And so it's a father who gave up his son. And with that, we also see then a willing son. That Isaac chose to lay on that altar. And he could have gotten away at any moment, at any time. And yet Isaac chose to lay on that altar. He had all of the power, all of the opportunity to run away or fight back, but instead he trusted Abraham. See, the mountain in Moriah is an incredibly special place, incredibly special because we see this beautiful picture of Abraham trusting God's way and of God providing here in this area and that the area and events of Abraham and Isaac takes place in is an incredibly significant area. A few hundreds of years later when King David comes in and he establishes in this area the city of Jerusalem to be the capital of that nation that God made from Abraham. And that what they do then is they establish this area, this region, Jerusalem, to be the place that everybody would come and they would sacrifice at the Passover celebration. And that every year, thousands of Jews would come and they would sacrifice here and they would remember and they would trust in God's provision and they would trust that God would make a way and forgive sins and would be there for them in these times. All the way up until when the Romans take over and Jesus shows up on the scene and Jesus comes to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover in a place where he is then arrested, where he is tried where he is taken outside of Jerusalem and is crucified. We see in Genesis 22 with Isaac and Abraham the foundation for God providing for all of mankind and in sending Jesus, God's only son, to be the sacrifice that would take the sins of the world upon him so that whoever chose to trust in him could be brought back into the family of God and made right before him. Now, when we jump into the New Testament and we read the Gospels about the life, the death, the trial, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, when we read these things about Jesus, we see the same three things that we saw in Genesis chapter 22. That in the story of Jesus, we see that God does indeed provide. That our sin, our bad choices, our rebellion... Our missing the mark is what separated us from a holy God that we can't do a single thing about it. And so God provides 
according to his will. And he made a way for both justice to be served and for forgiveness to be given. And in that way, it was a father who gave up his son. The book of Romans chapter 8 puts it this way. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? That phrase, did not spare, that is used here, is a reflection of the events of the things that happened with Abraham and Isaac all the way back in Genesis 22. That God not sparing his son, but allowing his only child to be placed on an altar as a sacrifice. And the reason that happens is because there is also a willing son. Just like Isaac, Jesus had every opportunity and ability to get away, but instead he chose to trust the plan and the provision of his father. That when we read in the Gospels, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane struggling deeply. Guys, there's any other way. Take this cup from me. Take this away from me. But not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus was a willing son. The difference is that we are the ones who deserve the death. And just like the ram was provided for Isaac, Jesus was provided to take our place. The apostle John wrote a story about when Jesus shows up to be baptized with John the Baptist, who was there to to be a prophet, to proclaim that Jesus was soon coming. And this is John's reaction. We see in John 1, that John the Baptist says this. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's the willing son. There's the provision. There's God making a way. So we hear all that, and it's easy to say, Hey, that's, that's super cool. Great event, like this whole thing of Abraham being tested and Isaac, that's great. And now I see it, Jake, that's awesome. Is this reflection of how it comes over to Jesus. That is super cool too. God had this plan all along. God is in charge. That is so cool. What does that mean for me today? <laughs> what am I supposed to do with this? How does this apply to me? And I think we can take two things away from this. I think you can take two things home today. And it's simply, number one, allow your actions to follow your faith. Allow your actions to follow your faith. God may have told you to climb a mountain that is full of emotions and sacrifice and the unknown and maybe even danger. Walk up anyway. Walk up anyway because the power of God is on display on top of that mountain when we allow our actions to follow our faith. That it may be scary, it may be unknown, it may not make sense, it may defy logic. Walk up anyway. Allow your actions to follow your faith. And the way that you can do that is because you can recognize that God provides. Recognize that God provides. None of us deserve the forgiveness that was offered when Jesus became that sacrifice lamb in our place. But instead, we deserve to be wholly consumed by our sin, by our rebellion, by us missing the mark before us. Yet in spite of all of those things, God provided by allowing his son to take our penalty and to take our place. For some of us, 
Yeah, we need that reminder. We need that reminding that God provides for us. That whatever season of unknown or uncertainty you may be going through right now, whatever things you're going through that seem like they make absolutely no sense that God would let me come through this. No sense that God would do this to my business. It doesn't make any sense that God would do this to my family. I've been good. I've tried hard. It doesn't make any sense at all. We need to remember that God provides according to his plan and that no matter what happens, he is still in control. And for others of us, man, we need to trust for the first time maybe that God does indeed provide for us. It starts with this idea of believing that Jesus is in fact who he claimed to be, the son of God who laid down his life to take our penalty and to take our place so that we could be made right with God. We know it's true because we celebrate Easter every year. That Jesus conquered death, that the sacrifice was good, and that he rose again to prove it. Recognize that God provides and allow it to change who you are. When we are willing to climb that mountain, you will see something powerful that will change who you are. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that no matter what happens, no matter what things we may be going through, no matter what doesn't make sense in our life, Lord, that you are still in control. God, we just ask, Father, that you would strengthen us, remind us, Father, that our, our actions are to follow our faith, that you are in control of all things, God, and you work all things out according to your plan, God. May we have the strength and the courage, Father, to be bold enough to walk up that mountain by trusting in you. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.